Welcome to International History Declassified, the podcast that provides an insider's view of the history of the post-war world and the historians who study it. International History Declassified is a production of the History and Public Policy Program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Peter Beerstaker. And I'm your co-host, Keon Byrne. The Wilson Center's History and Public Policy Program uses archival sources and history to improve understanding of important global dynamics, trends in international relations, and U.S. foreign policy. The program is home to the Digital Archive, a free online resource of newly declassified materials from around the world, available and accessible at www.digitalarchive.org. In each episode of International History Declassified, Peter and I will sit down with historians to discuss their work and experiences researching in the field of international history. By examining their sources and methods, we hope to share with you the latest research being done on many different events, periods, and places that help shape our understanding of the world today. Hello, and welcome to another episode of International History Declassified. Sarah B. Snyder is a historian who teaches at American University's School of International Service. She is the author of two award-winning books, From Selma to Moscow, How Human Rights Activists Transformed U.S. Foreign Policy, and Human Rights Activism in the End of the Cold War, a transnational history of the Helsinki Network. Sarah is also a member of the History and Public Policy Program's Advisory Board. Sarah, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. Wonderful. So let's jump right into the questions. Uh, Your latest book, From Selma to Moscow, How Human Rights Activists Transformed U.S. Foreign Policy, explores the role that 1960s social movements in the U.S. played, shifting the conversation about global human rights. Uh, Without asking you to summarize the entire volume here in this conversation today, could you just tell us uh, one or two ways uh, that these movements helped shape the discussion uh, that led to the U.S. to try to take on uh, more of a leadership role on the human rights stage for the decades that followed? Sure. Thank you. Um, What I would emphasize is the ways in which the movement for black freedom in the United States um, subsequently led to attention um, to issues of racial discrimination, particularly in Southern Africa, and the ways in which that influenced US foreign policy. And the first thing that I would point to would be a sort of sense um, as American activists had greater um, success in sort of achieving their um, campaign for for greater civil rights, for greater voting rights, et cetera, um, that freedom from racial discrimination shouldn't be tied only to US citizenship, that it shouldn't be only black Americans who should be free from racial discrimination, but black Africans um, and other non-white peoples should also be able to enjoy um, sort of full access to their human rights. And so you see um, the beginnings of a sort of broader international campaign against apartheid in South Africa, um, against a racially discriminatory regime in Southern Rhodesia. And I would say that very much um, that's rooted in the tactics and um, ideas of the civil rights movement in the United States. Another thing that I would point to in in the way that sort of we can see this drive for attention to international human rights violations coming out of the civil rights movement is that during, say, um, the Eisenhower years or the Kennedy years, when people like Tim Borstelman and Mary Dudziak have pointed out the real um, 
kind of foreign policy implica implications of um, the, I guess sort of the, the, the terrible images um, that were being splashed across international newspapers, on um, television screens of black Americans being attacked by thugs, by police dogs, by the police. This was disastrous for the United States in its sort of Cold War campaign to portray itself as a beacon of freedom and rights. And so, and, and American policymakers, these historians have shown were aware of this and um, their emphasis on human rights, whether it's protecting um, students who are trying to integrate schools, et cetera, um, we know was rooted in these foreign policy concerns. But what I saw is that um, as there were greater achievements um, for African-Americans in US political life, as they um, were more fully able to exercise their right to, rights to vote, um, the end of legal segregation and public accommodations, et cetera, you see that Americans are increasingly emboldened to speak out about human rights violations abroad. Um, as the American record, certainly I don't believe that any American policymakers believed that they had solved the issue of racial discrimination in the United States, um, but they believed that they could tell a story about progress about confronting past wrongs and about trying to right them. And that this was a narrative that they could bring onto the international stage as a way of confronting countries like the Soviet Union, like South Africa, like Greece, and say, we have had past abuses of human rights, we're trying to solve them and you should do the same thing. And so you see a much more active American voice, whether it's in debates at the UN um, or in more bilateral uh, negotiations or just in public statements, um, a greater willingness to talk about human rights. And so I, I would point to those as sort of two very clear ways in which we can see that um, what seems to be a potentially only domestically focused um, social movement in the 1960s ask, actually had incredibly important international ramifications. Shifting a little bit, in your post uh, blog post on sources and methods, uh, you wrote about uh, activism uh, within the State Department that sought to push uh, U.S. leaders and leadership to, uh, and I'm going to quote from, from it here, uh, toward a more moral approach to U.S. foreign policy. Um, well, it seems like people like uh, Henry Kissinger resisted some of the efforts by Winston Lord, Philip Habib, and others. Uh, your argument seems to be that those efforts led to the idea of human rights being institutionalized within U.S. diplomacy. Uh, when you study a topic like this, how important is it to look at the documents and archival material, not just from the executive uh, high level, uh, but also hear the, the thoughts and beliefs and, and writings of some of the undersecretaries or career diplomats or, or even non-state groups, how, how they influenced uh, some of the higher thinking? I think that the need to do that might vary based on the... Um, the time period or the person who was in charge, say in this case of the State Department. But when you're looking um, at a process by which US foreign policy is changing from the bottom up um, and also from the outside in, then I think it's absolutely essential to be looking below the level of the Secretary of State. And I would say not just um, maybe to the level of the Assistant Secretaries in Washington, but I found it was incredibly useful to be looking below the level of the ambassador 
um, at the various um, sort of US embassies that I was interested in. For example, I was really interested in what was happening within the US embassy in Seoul. And I found that even when say the Nixon administration had a political appointee who wasn't particularly interested in human rights, um, and I found the same pattern um, in the US embassy in Athens as well, that there were foreign service officers who were maybe the labor attache um, or the cultural attache who'd become close to um, labor activists or artists, writers who were dissidents and were speaking out against torture or political imprisonment in these countries. And the ties that these foreign service officers had to them meant that their plight was more visible to policymakers in Washington, that they had the opportunity to have at least a kind of veneer of official American attention to their cases. And so I think absolutely we have to look below the top level in each of these um, institutions when we want to know about um, policies that are being changed by, by individuals um, and that it's not always, I mean, my impression, honestly, of the way that foreign policy was made during the Nixon and Kissinger years was very top down. And so I was quite surprised to see the extent to which a number of these assistant secretaries, people who were not opponents of Henry Kissinger, but sort of his, his loyal deputies were pushing him in this new direction. So I think it's, in my case, it was essential to be looking at these records to really understand how there could have been a meaningful shift in policy over time. That, that's really fascinating. And, and bringing in sort of the Nixon doctrine as sort of, um, you know, counter to a lot of these processes, um, looking at these documents and, and sort of the, the point of view of these kind of lower level um, diplomats and officials, um, how do you see them sort of battling with the kind of inherent contradictions of the Nixon doctrine to their own beliefs in, in kind of promoting civil rights abroad? Um, are these contradictions there? Or is that something that sort of uh, maybe I'm blowing up in my own mind? Um, and, and uh, you know, how, how do these kind of lower level people push uh, bottom up change in diplomacy, particularly in regard to human rights? I guess the way that I would think about them is that they, they're not revolutionaries, right? They're all still cold warriors. Um, they're not saying that the kind of fundamental premise of US foreign policy is wrong, that they disagree with it. What they are saying is that the United States could wage the Cold War more effectively um, if it was seen as an ally of champions of human rights rather than the dictators who are oppressing their people. Um, and that's something you see again and again in the documents is that some of the calculations that people like Nixon and Kissinger were making about who were American allies and who it was important to support for Cold War priorities, their underlings believed that, that it was, a, that they weren't evaluating the stakes hmm. the way mm -hmm that advanced long-term U.S. interests most mm -hmm. effectively. Hmm. Um, I, I think, I mean, you, you see a lot of parallels kind of in a number of different countries. This isn't only happening in, in, in a few. Um, so it's pretty fascinating. I'm just kind of making a lot of connections and sort of the transition to the Carter period where, you know, human rights takes kind of a, uh, you know, front role, you know, um, Kind of more prominent role in, in his administration. But moving into today, uh, what role do you see human rights playing in U.S. diplomacy? Can we be the same human rights activist um, as a, at a state level as we were in the past? Or is that something where we kind of have to, to 
work to kind of balance our position that as it sort of developed since the 60s, the long decade of the 60s? I think I'm going to answer your question in a little bit of a different way than you might have intended. Perfect. <laughs> um, in that, you know, you use the, the verb can. I think absolutely yeah. the United States could choose um, to make human rights a greater priority in its foreign policy. The current administration is not doing so. Um, and I would say the Obama administration had um, had made certain calculations about where and when it was going to emphasize human rights. And just like Cold War era president, presidents chose um, to not emphasize human rights in some relationships that it believed mm-hmm. were, were more important um, for their vision of the place of the United States in the world. But I think that rather than thinking about kind of this from Washington's perspective, what concerns me is the way that those messages would be received right now, um, given um, things like the continued imprisonment um, of people in Guantanamo Bay without due process. Um, But even more recently, the separation of families at the southern border of the United States and the imprisonment of children in cages, I think makes it very challenging for the United States to talk about um, the lack of due process in other countries um, and uh, discrimination against certain groups in other countries. If we can see that disproportionately black Americans are experiencing police violence um, and that their rights to due process are not being respected, it raises a lot of questions about the degree to which the United States uh, could be criticizing other countries if it didn't, as I mentioned earlier, kind of take the approach that it did in the 1960s of acknowledging the severe problems within the United States, then talking about how they were trying to change and improve those practices um, and trying to, rather than act in a sort of superior way, act as if um, respecting and championing human rights is something that the United States wanted to work on together with other foreign governments. Um, So I think that there are multiple issues right now that um, complicate the narrative that some people would like to project of the United States as a sort of international champion of human rights. But if we can shift a little bit here and, and begin talking a little bit about your, your methods and your sources uh, for your research, I'd like to ask a little bit about um, your experience working uh, in archives for, for the two books that you uh, we mentioned earlier and for your blog post. Um, are there any, uh, you know, U.S.-based collections or non-U.S. collections uh, or archives that you, uh, you've had a chance to explore, you found especially uh, significant, or are there ones that um, you haven't had, a, have not had an opportunity to work in yet and that you hope uh, will become more accessible or have a chance to explore? I'm going to start by talking about the research for my first book on the Helsinki process. And this is something that I probably should have realized, but I was um, slow to pick up on the fact that most human rights organizations um, that are operating in conditions of great danger can't actually create any archives, right? It opens you up to arrest, to exile, um, to all sorts of of, um, consequences if you're keeping any records of the work that you're doing. So for me, the Moscow Helsinki group was incredibly important in my research for the first book. 
but their archives were entirely reconstituted. And by archives, I, you know, I would say that that might be even an overstatement, um, but the, the archives as they were, were entirely reconstituted after the end of the Cold War, when it was finally safe for um, the group to maintain a record of all of the formal complaints that they had made about human rights violations in the Soviet Union. And so as I sort of recognized this challenge to doing research on human rights issues and particularly on, on um, individuals and groups that are operating um, in, in spaces that are dangerous to this activity, the greatest asset to me um, was a collection at, um, so the Open Society Archives uh, existed at the time at Central European University in Budapest and Hungary. And um, at the Open Society Archives, they had the records of Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty. And essentially what they had was a research file um, that the journalists at these radios had used. And every single time um, a human rights organization had sort of been able to get out of the Soviet bloc, a letter, a document, a report, they had cataloged it. Um, they'd cataloged them in the original languages that they arrived in. They had translated many of them into English um, so that they could be used in a wide range of different broadcasts. And this was just an invaluable asset to me. Um, also because it was a way to move beyond sort of the best known, most formally organized groups, someone like um, the Moscow Helsinki group, um, or, or initiatives in other countries. And sometimes it was just a single person who was able to get a letter out of, of their country. And so that type of um, kind of research file um, was really, really instrumental to me in understanding um, the kind of scope um, of human rights activism, the tactics that human rights activists were using and the ways that their human rights reporting was received. Um, so I think for me that that archive ended up being one of the most useful in my first book. The question about archives that I'd like to get into, I've, I'm working on a project now about American expatriates and their influence on US foreign relations. And um, one of the ways that I'm exploring this is looking at institutions that Americans created abroad. So um, places like American University in Beirut or the American School of Classical Studies in Athens. Um, these educational institutions have excellent archives and I've been able to do a lot of work in them. Um, and they've really illuminated the question that I'm trying to ask there, which is how did these American expatriates function as sort of unofficial diplomats for the United States in foreign countries? But clearly one of the key elements of the story of American expatriates in the world is American corporations. And some corporations that are defunct and don't exist anymore, you know, have decided to donate their um, collections to historical societies and they're accessible to research. But other corporations um, that are either still functioning or have been um, sort of consolidated into larger uh, corporations um, those records are still inaccessible. Um, and so for me, I'm really, really interested in getting into say the archives of Firestone because I wanna know about their um, practices in Liberia essentially. So one of the things that I'm trying to do is uh, trace 
the impact of American expatriates over time. And given that Liberia um, was um, a focus of very early American movement abroad through the American Colonization Society, um, I was hoping to sort of pair those Americans who moved to Liberia um, in the 19th century with Americans who moved to Liberia in the 20th century to run um, huge uh, rubber plantations for Firestone. And I came across this oral history interview with the American ambassador to Liberia who said that he and the head of Firestone in Liberia would meet with the president of Liberia together on a regular basis. And for me, this is sort of one of the key um, pieces of evidence that I'm trying to look at here. Essentially, the U.S. ambassador and the head of Firestone Liberia are treated as equals. They're as important to the government of Liberia. Um, but I can't tell that story very effectively uh, because thus far, at least, I have not seen a path to be able to gain access to Firestone's records relating to Liberia. Um, and I have the same issue with uh, oil companies that are really um, key to understanding the role the United States was playing in the Middle East in the mid 20th century, um, a few of those companies have records that are available, but um, the ones that I'm most interested in seem to have uh, internal archivists who put out sort of you know, corporate sanctioned publications, but don't necessarily open themselves up to independent research and independent scrutiny. So now we're going to ask the the same question we ask all of our guests who join us here on the podcast. Uh, are there any specific documents you've looked at that you found especially significant or perhaps that changed the way you looked at a, a, a person or a policy or an event or any collections like this? I'll, I'll, take, I'll take a stab at it at least. Um, and I would say one of the things that was really interesting to me when I was at AUB in Beirut doing research, I was looking through... Um, so. So the collection there is not just um, the sort of official documents of the university, but there's also enormous amount of family correspondence um, between the, the leadership of AUB and their relatives at home in the United States. And at some point, um, I would say there's almost weekly letters that are going back and forth. And in most, most cases, you have um, the correspondence coming from both directions. So you can really get a picture um, of, of the relationship and of sort of how they're handling this enormous um, separation. But what was really interesting for me um, as someone who has not in their own research or teaching spent a lot of time on World War I was kind of, I would say that the records that I found there made me really rethink the periodization that I would give to sort of the American experience in World War I, because the Americans at AUB were experiencing the war far before the United States formally entered it, in that they're, they're experiencing um, famine and dislocation. They're facing incredible challenges in getting teachers to the campus because of um, the dangers of, of crossing the Atlantic Ocean on ship. And um, as war looms for the United States, they are incredibly fearful about what might happen to Americans who don't evacuate. Um, will they be interned? How will they um, sort of survive financially? And this is one of the moments that I really saw that the president of AUB um, was perhaps as significant 
for the American community there as say the American consul um, was in terms of negotiating um, travel permits, trying to find a way to get um, money um, into to the university so that they could buy grain. Um, so for me, these, these personal letters, which I wouldn't have necessarily thought of as sort of key documents for my diplomatic history, revealed a lot about the way in which um, this individual was operating as a diplomat for the American community at AUB. Uh, I think this was a really fascinating conversation we had today. Uh, a lot of lot of ground was covered, and a lot of questions were, were asked and answered, and perhaps still are, are unanswered. But uh, it was a, a great uh, great discussion. And and uh, Kian and I would really like to thank you, Sarah, for joining us today. Yeah, really, thank you. Oh well, thank you so much for having me. This is a lot of fun. As always, you can get in touch with us by emailing coldwar at wilsoncenter.org. We'd like to thank Graham Norwood for this podcast's music. You've been listening to International History Declassified, a podcast focused on history, historians, their sources, and their methods. International History Declassified is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. And for more information on a world of topics, issues, and ideas, please visit wilsoncenter.org. International History Declassified is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars.